this is Zach. I am here on the 18th floor of the sixth tallest academic building in the United States, Rhodes Tower. I did not know that. Right? <laughs> Downtown Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland State University. What's going on? I am looking out the window. It's a beautiful fall day. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm here with Hillary Plum. Hello. And we are introducing our guests for this episode of Index for Continuance, Daryl Seitchik and Dan Knott of the Comics Press, Micro Press, Indie Press, we'll get into it, Parsifal Press, based in Vermont, USA. We have some terms for you. These terms, you know, if you've been following along, you know our, you've learned our methodology. Um, just a handful today uh, that we wanted to um, define forefront because um, I think they frame the conversation pretty well. The first one has to do with Vermont pretty directly and I think is helpful context for those who may not know about this particular thing. Yeah. I also want to say that I'm from Vermont. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and if you're wondering why I talk like this. There's your answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, talk like what? Like, like I think that's where my accent is from. You're doing air quotes right now. I'm doing I'm a just... lot of air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, the Vermont accent, it's not widely known because there's not very many people in Vermont, and they don't talk to outsiders. <laughs> Write in, please, and explain it to us. Yeah, and probably mine is not pure because I moved around a lot. Um <laughs> so anyway, Dan and Daryl, in our um, in our wonderful conversation with them, at sometimes they just say the acronym CCS. So I just wanted to say that that is the Center for Cartoon Studies. And I'll read one sentence from the website of the Center for Cartoon Studies to define it. Um, the Center for Cartoon Studies offers a two-year course of study that centers on the creation and dissemination of comics, graphic novels, and other manifestations of the visual narrative. So they are a school located in or a higher education school located in White River Junction, Vermont. Great name of a town. Yeah. I I grew up in Massachusetts, and sometimes I hear people talk about White River Junction. It was a place where you could go to then get a pretty quick bus to Canada. And I always thought, wow, White River Junction sounds like a real frontier town. <laughs> yeah. It might be. <laughs> go there and find out. Um our next term uh, is more letters. These letters are DIY, um, specifically referring to DIY music scenes, um, which comes up in this conversation. DIY, of course, from those of you who've been to Home Depot or looked at YouTube before, maybe know about do-it-yourself, usually referring to, you know, home projects, mm -hmm. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Um, I think DIY, uh, in the context that it gets used here, and that, that where we mean it culturally, um, has a lot more to do with uh, culture making. Um, you know, I guess full context, Dan and I both grew up around uh, pretty specific and like really small, but like really fun, um, just like rural kind of like punk music scenes um, in Massachusetts uh, and 
you know, DIY. Dan kind of invokes it when he's talking about money. <laughs> and um, often in this type of space, there's a particular relationship to finances. Um, the relationship isn't like adversarial, but um, it's just curious, you know, and I think I know that for myself, one of the things that, uh, you know, I really like grew up with this social culture of making art and sharing it and trying to create shared spaces for it that were sustainable and motivated by things other than a profit, at least a monetary profit. Um, you know, it has, I don't know, I guess it's just like informed a lot of my life. Um, this sort of, I don't know, silly teenage punk stuff. And I, I don't know if I, I'm just trying to legitimize things I did as a teenager into some kind of shape of a career. But um, I felt as soon as I was first exposed to the sort of culture of small press publishing, that there's just so much in common um, between it. If not, it's execution all the time. At least it's kind of ideals and like motivating energy, um, you know, between just what like how is how is starting a press different from like starting a record label and uh, often motivated by really similar sometimes antagonistic aims of just like why can't well why can't we make a record why can't we make a book well you totally can <laughs> turns out um if you want to figure out how to do that um and i think that there's just i don't know i guess just in my assessment there's a lot to think about in terms of the overlap culturally. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that for me, one thing, if we, if we think about continuance, <laughs> where it comes from, um, I think the, the notion of making something on your own terms, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, it's an endless source of like energy for me. Um, we can see that maybe the distance a thing can go that's self-made, you know, if you like build your own airplane, maybe it's like only going to fly so far, but it's going to be your airplane, your crash, <laughs> all your friends aboard it. I don't know. Let's go. Um, but anyway, uh, I think it's just like maybe helpful to mention it here uh, because it does, it does come up and I forget if I ask the question or if, if Dan does, but he uh, puts it in like way better terms than I can thinking about um, yeah, just this idea of like DIY music scene, you know, and I think it's been interesting to me to see how like DIYness, especially, you know, in the last maybe like 10 years has sort of, I guess, evolved from like a distinctly punk sort of um, cultural idea um, into sort of uh, like an all encompassing way of making music and like music culture, like across genre. So there's an interesting almost like mixing, uh, almost like interdisciplinary um, spirit in there. And I, I think one of the things that I always enjoyed about thinking about, cause like, you know, I was really into like being a little punk at one point or another, but I think that like sort of like the DIY spirit is sort of a genreless um, and more of like an ethical commitment, which I feel heartened by and want to, want to hope and, and see and look for in the world of, literary pursuits and publishing yeah i think of it i don't know this isn't i wasn't part of any scene like that so i don't have any knowledge about that but when i think of that spirit in terms of small press stuff or events i think of like like when you show up for something are you willing like will you set up some chairs so you're you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. or do you do you 
does does the event think that the chairs would already have been mm-hmm. set up? You know, like yeah, like are you willing to sell your own shit after the event? You know, yes. like where where people can, people can buy it right from you, like, or is that is the idea that that would be beneath the artist or removed from them or something? So I think of it in small press moments where I just like throw myself behind some table and start selling things. <laughs> you know, my like, mm-hmm. or like you help the event happen, like your your energy is part of like how the whole thing is organized and happening not not it's not like a featured part of like you're not just the artist at the center you are also the thing like you're helping the whole thing exist yeah that's right yeah are you like are you willing to cold call somebody to try to like get a venue for your thing that you want to do are you willing to invest your own personal resources in production of your or someone else's art and are you willing to take a loss? I think if the answer is yes, that is like kind of a inherently like anti-institutional mm-hmm. position to be in. And, you know, I think there are ways in which maybe this term and it's like practice couldn't be examined critically in ways that mm-hmm. are productive for sure. Um, but I think that like at the heart of it, like that that is that is the motive and um i i don't know i i guess i'm being sentimental but like i i actually think like that's that's punk like that's punk rock like sort of regardless of of what what the sound or the the style is anyway um diy there we go i used to um i used to volunteer when i was in high school for a nonprofit in worcester massachusetts that did all ages shows at uh, like art spaces. One place was called the WAG, Worcester Artist Group, which I think was an old light bulb factory. And uh, the QVCC, the Quinsigamond Valley Community Center, which in the times that it was not hosting like either like a folk or noise or hardcore punk show was a meeting space for I think like a really small church group. And so this organization was called DCFIY, which stood for Don't Complain, Fix It Yourself. And it was really always, it was really fun to drive from like my small town to like go and help run these shows where we'd have like a crock pot full of chili for everybody. Um, and it was all ages, so like it wasn't at a bar and like, you know, it was like a very sober event. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I really loved was how there was this big banner up behind the stage that had another acronym on it, which was P-U-S-H, which was pray until something happens <laughs> that I think the church group was using. So I really liked the juxtaposition of pray until something happens with don't complain, fix it yourself. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in the acronyms today. Um, the other, another term we wanted to pull in just to like briefly touch on, um, was was I think it's like we say it or we say a version of it all the time. Literariness, right? The idea of like what is the literary and what qualifies as literary. Um, Daryl makes a good case or like presents it in a, a nice, convenient and convincing way here. With well, how do you think of comics as literary? Which was one of our questions going into this, and they have. They have a good answer. So mm-hmm. um, we in literary 
publishing have trouble, maybe more trouble defining literariness sometimes as like, I think it's like a quality of genre or quality of style maybe sometimes, depending how you're looking at it. But um, seeing it in light of comics, I think was, I mean, for me, it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, maybe at some point we'll get into it on the fiction side because it's like a question that exists in like ways that quote unquote genre fiction have come into what previously would have been thought of as literary fiction. We hear about like literary crossover work, et cetera, like the literary fiction as being itself a genre, you know, rather than something that you could take for granted as the artistic center of what fiction is. Um, so we see that question of like what <laughs> what is literary about literary fiction or like why do people when they want to praise genre fiction do they need to emphasize its literariness yeah, or something yeah. like that and and we see it in nonfiction too where it's like what is a literary essay versus like what's journalistic or is mm-hmm. is criticism etc so we can we'll be in conversations about that I feel like and probably totally. have been in them um, it's an om- it's an yeah. omnibus topic yeah you know it's one of those. Yeah, we're we'll figure out what literature is on this. On this book. That's really what. Yeah. We're, that's all. Someone tell me, please. Yeah. <laughs> Don't complain. Fix it yourself. Um. Don't complain. Yeah. Email us instead. No, I don't. I, that's not right. <laughs> The next, um, and this is like not unrelated to the question of what is literary, like who decides what's literary, um, which has this kind of like artistic status to it. But um, we talk a little bit about self-publishing in this um, episode, in this conversation with Dan and Daryl. And maybe we'll just like briefly note some categories of self-publishing, you know, and I think we should do a a deeper dive (laughs) into Mm self-publishing at some point because it's it's something people ask about a lot. Like if you go and talk to at events or talk to people about publishing, it's a question that they really have about like, is self-publishing kind of legitimate? Should they do it? What is it like? Does it work in the same way that sending their work out to a publisher does, um, et cetera. In this, so like one realm of self-publishing and probably what people are mostly talking about when they use that term would be, you know, what we might call vanity publishing, where you are, you know, you have a book manuscript and you pay to have it published. And so it's available as a book. And nowadays, that mostly happens through Amazon, right? Like it happens mm-hmm. as an ebook on Amazon, although you can still do it as a print book as well. Um, that's the way people often circulate a book, like a memoir they've written to family members, maybe a professional book, you know, like, it's really handy if you've written something that's like, useful to people in your profession or in a particular circle that you're in and you don't need to have it published by some big apparatus like um so that's like vanity publishing where you're paying to have something published is kind of the main definition of self-publishing there's another kind of maybe self-publishing that we talk about a little bit in this episode which would be that you start a press and you publish yourself on it you know so in that sense you that is like self-publishing um but it also is including other people on the press and sort of also has a little bit of a just a little bit of a different history because it's something writers have been doing the whole time as often when they felt like their aesthetic or their work or people who had been excluded from mainstream publishing for um the whole range of reasons um you know racism classism sexism Mm -hmm. all sorts of things you know self people starting their own presses and publishing their work and the work of their friends or community on it was is a huge part of the history of publishing so that's we don't 
usually call that self-publishing exactly yeah. that does fall in that category or sometimes people may refer to it that way um yeah, yeah. i just i just feel so interested in sort of like the stigma against self-publishing yeah. that exists and the sort of ins and outs of it when like you're saying self-publishing has kind of been like a generative force in publishing since the beginning of publishing yeah and one reason why uh, i was really glad we just like talked about it with dan and daryl is because self-publishing is i mean i i guess i would say it seems to me that like comics artists to broadly define have seem to have like a very or comics culture seems to have a very different relationship to self-publishing mm-hmm. than the sort of like quote unquote like literary you know like small press culture that um, we are in and it was really interesting to talk about those differences and sort of try to account for them because mm-hmm. they're very real <laughs> but I feel like there are, are reasons for it some more valid than others. So self-published work is like it's pretty excluded from the traditional like like all the traditional like pathways of um, literature and publishing, like you really can't get reviews, you're not eligible for prizes, things like that. But there are like whole communities that you you can be part of. And so it really, you know, depends on who you're trying to reach and whether this kind of like legacy media um, or like traditional literary status matters to you, right? Like as to whether it's, it's a good option. I think a lot about a like, and I think I've, talked about this in class because it stuck with me as an example but like uh, a friend of mine who you know was trying to place like a fantasy novel and not having success with it at, at um, various publishers that do you know that were like great publishers for fantasy work and so she did end up self-publishing it and then um like stevie next read it <laughs> and messaged her on like facebook and so i was like what a rewarding experience like that's way better like no publisher could promise you that um no way so and it it's it is a money maker for places so you'll see too like okay like in places like the new york review of books when they have they have a little like inset that's like independently published books and it'll be all these ads so actually most of those are not independently published books in the way that we talk about independently published books or the industry does they are self-published it's kind of so sometimes when you see independently published it's sort of euphemistic for self-published but it's places that don't um you know they're they're because they're a quote-unquote vanity press they're trying to lend their work a certain kind of um, cachet or legitimacy and calling it independently published rather than self-published so yeah and interestingly like not not published by an independent press but published independent of a press yeah 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 (laughs) yeah yeah. where it's like you don't no one no one can say no to you but you do have to pay Mm -hmm. pay the money and i think well we should plan to have someone on or talk more about it just because I think it is its history is really important and also it's it is like a democratic thing like it's a way that work can get out there that other people were saying no to it's also a way that people make money you know like um and there's like interesting you know you see some self-published authors who then get picked up by like a big five because they've gotten really really successful you see some people go back um you know one of my relatives who's an author she went from a big five to um, running her own press because you get a much higher share of the profit that way. And if you feel like you're doing most of the work anyway, why are you sharing it? Yeah. <laughs> why are you sharing it with a corporation? <laughs> so people go back and forth from those statuses. And, um, you know, it's interesting to talk about in terms of like who gets the money and the visibility and the status, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
self-publishing. We got into some of it. Uh, our next, our next term, I'm, I'm gonna do two. Do it. <laughs> Is, but I can't say it. Serialization. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Dan and Daryl talk about this in a cool way in relation to graphic work and comics. Uh, it used to have obviously a place in fiction where you know basically like publishing a longer work, but in in serialized chunks right like in pieces so chapter by chapter or like book by book like a lot of 19th century fiction is published this way um Mm -hmm. for a while like the new york times magazine was bringing it back this was maybe like 10 years ago they were doing some serialized novels where like a big novelist was writing a novel that you know a chapter would appear each sunday or something that's cool so it's a big also a big part of the history of publishing and that people would be like wondering what happened next and they would Mm -hmm. read it and, and it's how like it structures novels of the past, you know, because they were written, you know, uh, like, like their individual pieces were published freestandingly. So you, they move forward in terms of publication. Like it's not like you can go back and yeah and revise. Um, uh, yeah. I just I just then wonder like one if one is writing to that if one is like writing to a deadline like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I I would wonder you know and maybe I'm sure someone. Again, email us smart people uh, who aren't us know stuff. But, like, how many of those novels were written like that? You know what I mean? Totally. Like, we should talk to a scholar of all that stuff because it would be beautiful to know more about yeah. how much feedback people got along the way. You know, that yeah. sort of thing. But just to define that term in the sense of, like, it means that, like, the novel is coming out or whatever kind of work it is. But, you know, usually it would be fiction or, in their yeah. case, you know, graphic narratives. They're coming out... Um, you know, piece by piece in some kind of unit, We, you know, usually a chapter, but or you could say like a book in terms of a book of a novel or a part of a novel coming mm-hmm. out that way. So it, it means like um, it's not composed as a book length whole. It's composed in these units. Um, it's cool. Yeah. That are published along the way. Yeah. And then later compiled. So you out there might be a scholar of this. And we, we'll, we would like to talk to you. Yeah. Or your favorite friend in this field (laughs) school of scholars friends in the field yeah we call to you from the 18th floor (laughs) uh that's a poem um oh our last term is zines let's go yeah yeah we again we're not i'm not a scholar of zines i'm actually not a scholar of anything as people on the internet sometimes point out um (laughs) uh But zines, I can talk about zines just in in relation to my own, in relation to my own relationship to them. Um, Why not? As a, you know, I think I was in the later wave generationally of people who might have a zine. So it was a culture that was, that existed when I was a teenager and the coolest, like brainiest, most poet headed um, teenagers that you knew, like the girls you wanted to be, like they had a zine and so you could you might have a zine or they might encourage you to have a zine and so you would just put it's you know it's like a magazine you make yourself of your own writing you put it together yourself you go mm-hmm. to the copy shop you um paste things on the paper and then you white out the edges so that the copies are real nice nice and then you know so it's limited edition self-distributed um magazine of your own work usually although you could do it of other people's work so one of my zines i, co- I collected work from all over using yeah. the internet which was a new tool of that time. Um, and, you know, of course, there was like a huge, 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 beautiful, robust culture around this. And strangers might hear about your zine and they might send you a um, dollar in the mail in an envelope. And then you sent them 
your zine or they might trade zines with you. So they would send you their zine and you would send your zine back. So it was a huge like ne- informal, like horizontal network mm-hmm. culture of people distributing their own work. It's yeah. a cool, yeah, it's a cool and like I, like vibrant and like I feel like not, I mean the the method or the uh, the form might seem a little like antiquated, but is from what I can see like alive and well all over the place um and is another term that like i feel like really ties in with like music culture for sure just i mean a lot of i know for me like a lot of my early exposure to zines like they were not like literary objects Mm -hmm. they were like collections of like reviews of like local bands and like really crappy black and white pictures from like basement shows and like an interview with some really fucking mean dude who everyone like knew about you know like yeah just totally like, you would you could do great criticism in them yeah totally and yeah, some yeah. of them like i think of um i mean it, obviously this grew into more of a magazine but like maximum rock and roll right which was like a famous like punk like you'd call it a magazine for sure because it's like thicker it's it was certainly industrially printed um but the spirit of it right i I think zine also invokes a certain kind of like aesthetic or like attitude as well sometimes like but that was like a very to your point about the criticism very pointed and entertaining to read writing (laughs) often in those things um literary yeah maybe you know um but it's it's another one that uh connects connects with music uh but certainly like a diy kind of culture um or aspiration and i think particularly zines are interesting in publishing history not only for like the community aspect of them but also the way in which the like the form forefronts its form Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like you i would say right like zine has not just an aesthetic um aesthetic meaning in terms of like what might be inside it, but the actual like materials, right? Like you were just talking about this process where it's like yeah, you're cutting stuff out, you rubber uh-huh. cement it onto a larger piece of paper, and you white out the edges. Yeah, like, that's yeah. And like we talked with Dan Darrell about this, but just about the way in which that, um, you know, the the materiality itself is like a layer of meaning to the totally. object, right? Totally. In, a, in a way that, I mean, these are opposite ends. If we're trying to have like a high low relationship, but like. I don't think this is terribly different from, like, the tradition of artist books, which mm-hmm. are meant to be these, like, book objects where, like, the objectness is read alongside. Like, it's not just a container for literature or language. It's, like, the whole thing is a meaningful item. Yeah. And there's not very many of them. So, like... I guess the obvious connection that I didn't make is zines are self-publishing, right? You're publishing mm-hmm. your own work. Like, you decide what's in there. Like, yeah. you put your poems in there and send them out. Um, and also, it's, I guess, the other aspect of, of the material. And I feel both, like, like I don't have any of my own zines, which is something I get mad about in the episode. I want. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but also, it means your work, like, you are able to share your work with, like, a community, like, both friends and, like, strangers and other people who are into that like but it's not like on the internet you know like like 35 years like I don't know how old I am no 25 years later guys <laughs> like I'm real bad at math um <laughs> like 
people can't it's not like a like a tumblr or something where people can still find it or maybe those all vanished you into the internet but there's something nicely like there's something you know both a sense of loss that they kind of are locked away in the materialness of themselves like there's Mm -hmm. only like 10 or 20 of them or however many you made or 50 or 100 but like But also it means that they're, like, whatever you chose to say in your zine when you were 14 or 15, like, <laughs> like everybody doesn't know about it now. Yeah. Like, only other 14, 15-year-olds who wanted to read your zine know. So I think that, too, in, te- in terms of, like, juvenilia or subculture mm-hmm. or community, it's nice that it's, like, it's away from the Internet. Like, it's not yeah. still, there isn't an idea that everything needs to be available. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sweet. That's nice. Yeah, they are like, I feel like hyper local and temporary in a way, um, and in, like impermanent in a way that's not literary. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. maybe one quality mm-hmm. of literariness, if we're trying to define it, there's a, an idea of like the lasting and yeah. the, the canonical, the worthwhile. Like, yeah. it'll, yeah, a zine is like insisting on its own ephemerality. Yeah, like people don't need 25 years later to read your review of like yeah. X or Y show you went to, uh-huh. <laughs> even though I'm sure you were right. Like, I believe you. But. Some, some of my favorite, I'll just, I'll just say, that's true. The ephemerality is there, but I think it's also, to share a personal thing, some of my favorite writing I have ever done was for a, a two-page zine that my friend in Worcester used to make called the Lowell Sun. The Lowell Sun is the paper of record in Lowell, Massachusetts, but he spelled it S-O-N. That's right. And uh, it was a really laborious project where uh, he would use a typewriter to typewriter everything out and cut it out and glue it to each side of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that he would then bring to Staples to get Xeroxed a bunch on different colored paper. And one side was just all the shows that were coming up that month. And the other side was sometimes like a little status update. Um, One of my favorite pieces of, or some of my favorite pieces of writing I ever got to do for it were reviews of polar seltzer flavors. (laughs) (laughs) And um, occasionally there'd be like a poem, you know, some other little garbage. but that, I don't know, it was really fun. And uh, we got invited to Polar Seltzer HQ one time because of it to try secret seltzers. See, it was your Stevie Nicks moment. That was our Stevie Nicks moment. Yeah. And personally, it was my peak. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have, I've been, it's all downhill from there. Uh, which is, I guess to say, the point of that anecdote is that we're talking about you know, these zines on, like, fairly, like, sociological or, like, academic terms, but going back to sort of the spirit of DIY, like, it, it is, like, essentially about, like, fun, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, something that I feel like in English class we often term as, like, play or experimentation. It's like, well, it was actually just, like, fun (laughs) and, like, fun to do. And, like, (laughs) vulnerability in like an emo way that was fun you know where you're like <laughs> yeah. these are all my feelings like <laughs> yeah sure totally like, what do you guys think of my feelings it'll, yeah. but it'll take them like they're not going to tell you like i was thinking when you're talking about that it has all the like fun like mundanity and ephemerality of the 
internet writing where it's like you're doing mm-hmm. you're writing something that's dumb and doesn't matter but it's good you know like yeah like but it doesn't have the like quote-unquote context collapse of the internet like it has mm-hmm. a context like you're addressing right. other people who want to read that shit and if random people find it and don't like it they just will throw it away you know they'll yeah. just like or put it back down wherever they found it mm-hmm. they won't reply to yeah. you like, <laughs> as they do on social media which is so wild and leads yeah. to this horror but you know like <laughs> like it had a context you know so you could write some mm. cool dumb shit and either people would like it or they would ignore it or it would just like have this slow burn or something mm-hmm. and you would send your you would put your feelings in a bottle and send it put it in the yeah. ocean <laughs> like you know <laughs> yeah which i guess do you think if do you think that if tumblr and Twitter and Instagram automatically printed out somewhere into mm-hmm. like a big giant warehouse, it would make a difference. Where you had to go sit and read them, like, and then you, you could write back? You would just be accountable to it in a material way that felt distant, but maybe at the end of the year they'd mail it all to you. That's cool. I don't think it would matter to writer to writing at all. I think people would write whatever. Yeah. I think they'd write. We'd all write as impulsively. Mm-hmm. But I think it matters to reading, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't read it all, and it matters so much for conversation because you, because people just reply. I don't know because of the speed and the. That's right lack of context or the way that people reply as though you were talking to them or about them or about whatever they're thinking about, which of course you weren't. Um, the printed out internet is a place for subtext. Yeah. I, well, comics has it figured out. Yeah. I, 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 I feel, I think is what I learned from this conversation. With I also, Darryl. yeah. And I want to, I want to compliment us because we don't know anything about comics. So oh. that's clear. That's clear. <laughs> And, Thanks for complimenting but us. We, on that. But I like, it's like, I like that as an invitation too to just like appreciate and learn about like different stuff, you know, oh where and you don't have to know all the terms beforehand. Like you don't have to have it all pinned down. Like you can just be excited and, and trusted. So knowing stuff is so lame. Yeah. Like no, no less, you know? I feel, I, yeah. I, I feel, I, I feel guided and girded. By those two words no yeah. less no less no less <laughs> all right well uh, <laughs> we're gonna vanish in a cloud of our own ignorance and meanwhile here's the great conversation goodbye bye hello i'm zach peckham i'm here with hillary plum hello and we're talking with daryl sychik hey and Dan Knott. Hello. Hello. Um, who are the founders of Parsifal Press, comics artists, educators, um, and full disclosure, uh, friends of mine. So, um, you know, all biases, uh, let, them, let them be clear and known. So Daryl and Dan, we're here to talk about comics, which I sometimes see spelled with an X. <laughs> and uh, someone explained to me once what that meant, but I don't remember the reasoning, but I definitely think it looks cool spelled that way. And uh, a form that I also see referred to in a wider way um, as like graphic narrative, right? Or like quote, like graphic narratives. So maybe 
somewhere along the way during this conversation, you can like set me straight on this, explain if those are different things. Um, tell me what the letter X means or, or not. Who cares? Who cares what I think? It's like the new name for Twitter. Oh yeah. Oh, that's what X is. Yeah. Right. It's Twitter. Yeah, Elon Musk also took over indie comics. So. Oh, good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, comics, comics in space, comics on the moon, satellite network, colonize Mars. But anyway, we're here to talk about comics and um, also publishing. So uh, I'll preface all this by saying I'm just really curious to get your thoughts and observations on publishing attitudes and aesthetics as they manifest in the comics slash graphic narrative world and um, whether they're any different from how these things shake out. In It was funny. I was like, I found myself trying to like make a distinction between like literature that is like all text <laughs> and um, literatures that have um, a visual component to them that are not like the alphabet or uh, characters, right? Um, but just for like the, the sake of this, I mean, that's like an existential crisis, but um, basically just trying to think about like whether these sort of attitudes, aesthetics, right, are any different, you know, in like between those two worlds. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we'll just start by asking you about your press that you're running. So you run a small comics publishing initiative, which you refer to as a press, Parsifal Press. So do you want to start by just telling us about Parsifal? Like what inspired you to start a press of your own? So it was kind of organic and a slow process. We both met at a graduate program for making comics and kind of joked about starting a press for a while because we have similar taste. And then eventually we ended up having the funds to actually do it and the time. And but it is a very slow, organic process still. And uh, it was fun kind of landing on the name. You want to talk about how we landed on the name? Yeah. And in that process of thinking, oh, we would love to be publishing people's comics. And we were trying to think of what a good name for it would be. I think we were with Empress Press for a while, kind of like the tarot card. Um, but I was like, I don't know about being tied to empire yeah. um and we were like we spent like an entire night really trying to like brainstorm interesting titles and i mean a lot of like the press has to do with sort of the intersections of our tastes and our um what we're interested in and we had seen an exhibit of hilma of Quint's artwork at the guggenheim and I was like, I should look to see what she titled some of her paintings. And one of them was called Parsifal. And I just really liked the sound of it. I wasn't really sort of aware of the, the backstory of, of Parsifal as a character. And I, I brought it up and Daryl instantly knew the whole sort of mythology behind it, which maybe you want to elaborate on. Yeah, so I went through a, a holy grail phase. I go through phases of like interest and Parsifal is one of the seekers of the holy grail. And um, his name literally translates to fool pure fool i forget in what language <laughs> but uh and so he's kind of like the archetype of the fool like you'd see in the tarot and um so we we thought that just kind of worked for what we were trying to go for with the comics that we like they're kind of like venturing into the unknown they're imaginative a little bit magical and, uh, and so that's the name we came up with <laughs> yeah and we we started by we published um comic of each of ours and then uh, a friend of ours uh sage clemens had published like a small tiny little mini comic called everyone is sorry 
that they had probably printed like 20 copies of in black and white in black and white and i remember it just like really resonated with me and i was like this would be such a great one to start with if they're willing to to do that so that was i think the first thing that we put out with this kind of idea that like oh well we can start by kind of helping comics or stories um, that we really like have more of a life to them than like 20 self-published copies that uh that might be given out to some friends that's cool so yeah just sort of like building building a readership i like the the link to the uh the fool and the 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 pure fool do you feel like foolishness is important (laughs) and like does one need to be a fool to start a press is that at all at the heart of that name you think or are you just being a little like um self-effacing no, it's true. I actually think it's essential, especially for indie comics. I we just went on. I wasn't on the panel. I was listening to a panel of other indie publishers in comics talking about how they got into what they do, and almost every single one of them actually said that it was an accident, and they were just kind of like suddenly publishers. And I feel like that has happened to us too. Like there's a need for it within the community, and then the community like kind of supports. Like we got a lot of support from Annie Koyama, um, who was my publisher and uh and she talked about how the same thing happened to her where like suddenly there were all these artists and she had the funds to do it and so there she was oppressed so you kind of and you also have there's just no sense of how much work it'll be beforehand so you just kind of have to go in blind (laughs) yeah for sure I think that makes it makes a ton of sense um so in terms of like what you hope to do as as a um as a publisher you know, on the one hand, it's just, I think what a lot of, I don't want to use words that are like diminutive, but like, you know, like a lot of like indie presses often, I think, begin with a similar impetus. That's like, you know, like I have all these friends who are making great work and like, I want it to be in the world. And it, it's not, <laughs> it's not able to be for, for any kind of reason, right? There's maybe like that um, initial spark, you know, that, that leads like, well, why don't, why don't we just do it? Why don't we do it ourselves? Why don't we, we found something. Um, I wonder if beyond that, if there are certain like goals or like priorities you have when it comes to like a certain type of literary or artistic aesthetic that you want to make space for, or if there are certain, just certain like audiences, or I just wonder about like the other kinds of like priorities you have as a press beyond just like, let's make comics. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, well, like what kind of comics and you say like intersections of like your tastes. And I think that's super cool because you both do. I think that's a really interesting idea. Cause like in my mind, as someone who's like a, like, I mean, like an idiot when it comes to like this form from what I can perceive with my, you know, bad vision, like you, I view the two of you as doing like very different work. Like you're kind of working in different um, aesthetics for sure. So um, I'm just curious to see, like, uh, you know, how that comes together on, on the press front. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. And um, I guess just for some context, I do a lot of like nonfiction work uh, that sort of deals with history or like almost like historical essays in comics. I, I do more like <laughs> I, I do all kinds of comics, but I guess you could say that it's a lot of surreal more imaginary based stories, poetic based, poetic based. That's not a thing. Um, yeah, just not 
we're like opposites in terms of what we focus on in our comics. But I think we're both interested in kind of like the magic in everyday life. And like, I'm interested yeah. in sort of like the the magic that you might find in history. And like, and so magic was something that we kind of bonded on in that way. And I think we also, at the intersection of both of our interests is just like the comics community in general. I teach a class, a uh, comic studies class, um, as a lot of comics history. And I think something that we notice looking at like comics history is that it's really, it's like a collection of like creators and small presses that exist usually for like 10 years at a time, right? Like there's like this life cycle of small press and like the sort of field of comics um, has a lot to do with like who's out there publishing and curating comics. And, you know, over the past few years, we've seen a lot of different presses shut down um, and it seems like there's, you know, there's so many different ways to be involved in comics besides just creating them. And whether it's like putting on festivals or volunteering or writing about comics. And, but one of the ones that we were both drawn to is actually publishing them. Um, and part of that is aesthetics, like you're asking about. And part of it is also just format. Um, comics and graphic novels are like really highly visible in the culture right now, but there's a pretty small sort of subset of type of comics that are being published by major publishers and they're usually like 200 pages long um like there's a focus on like middle grade and young adult comics um, can sum up what they're about in a sentence right you want to be able to like describe the plot really <laughs> easily but there's not um you know the comics that are shorter um sort of the graphic novella length or comics that don't fit into that category um, for those to exist really rely on small presses. So that's kind of what we're, I think we're trying to work our way up to is sort of filling that niche format wise. And aesthetic wise, I think we're, we're always sort of trying to define that by like looking at a comic and like asking like, is this a Parsifal comic? Um, and it even happens with our own comic sometimes too, where we're making something and we're like, is this a Parsifal comic? Or like, is this, um, like even the things that we make don't necessarily fall into that. But as Daryl said, it, you know, it often revolves around some sort of like deep empathy or magic. Not, they tend not to be cynical. I don't know, there's, there's something that we're going for that we're still trying to define through the works that we're publishing. That's cool. I think maybe that points to like, you know, one thing I wondered or had a little trouble with when I was trying to come up with like a useful distinction for the purpose of having this conversation between, you know, like fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and then like, you know, graphic texts, you know, this idea of like graphic narrative, like it's graphic, but like, it's not always narrative, <laughs> you know? And like, maybe, I mean, you know, the, the existence or not of like some like narrative, like structure or energy probably, maybe sometimes one can align to sort of what you're talking about, Dan, Daryl too, with, you know, the, the kinds of comics that are, or even like graphic texts that are more likely to be like picked up and widely distributed by a large publisher, right. Are, you can see like, there's a, there are certain aesthetics that um, don't, I don't know, I guess it's harder for someone with money to have faith in that, <laughs> in that product, like being as sellable. Um, and, you know, that's not based on nothing. I guess it's based on like the market. But yeah, I mean, that's not to me, I guess, I, I, like for this whole conversation, I'm just going to be like synthesizing based on my original question, which I apologize for. But like, you know, that doesn't seem so different to me, you know, from what happens or what 
I feel like I encounter in in the literary world, right? Like um, there, one can sometimes see why something like, oh, like this has to be a small press book, <laughs> you know, like this, like this, and that's, that's like, that's cool and special, but it's also just like, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's a fact. It's like, there's a, um, there are certain differences there. And I guess that, that kind of leads me to the next question, right? Cause like you, without even having to be prompted, like you're both using the term small press, right? Um, and one of my, something I'm curious about, right. In thinking about if there are like these differences like that, I think that term carries like certain meanings, um, in like the, you know, again, like the more like quote, like literary sort of like editing and publishing work that like that I do and that Hillary does. But I guess, I just wonder like what that term means to you. And if that is a phrase that people who make and engage with comics, like also use and understand. Yeah. I mean, one of the major, um, indie comics conventions is called the small press expo. And it's often the gateway for a lot of like people who self-publish or make or publish other people's work. That's where they go to meet other cartoonists. And it's where a lot of the community comes together every year, especially on the East coast. Um, so I feel like small press, at least for me is just, it, it's like a pretty big umbrella. Um, so it, it can describe a publisher as big as the biggest indie comics publishers, like Fantagraphics or D&Q, Drawn and Quarterly, would, I mean, I would actually consider them like medium presses, but they're technically small presses. They exhibit at these shows. They have a small, a much smaller print run than like any of the big five um, and smaller distribution. But there are also publishers that, you know, have been around for 10 years, have books in bookstores that are smaller, much smaller than Fantagraphics, like Silver Sprocket, Uncivilized. Those are small press they have seasons. That's another distinction for like a small press. Um, they, cause they have to like fit within the, this, the cycle of the distributor that they're working with to keep their press going. And I would tell us more like we're small press, but we're also technically like a micro press because we have no seasons. We're just like, whenever we feel like it, we put out a book. Um, and it's like, not even, it's like practically not a business. I mean, it is because Dan has to write it off on his taxes, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's like, it's a pretty big umbrella term for a lot of different types of publishers. Yeah, and I think this relates back to what you were saying at the beginning about like, it, sometimes the language that we're using is just like not very precise or it gets used interchangeably, whether that's comics with an X, um, which I think is like typically referred to as like underground comics or that's sort of where that, that came up. Um, but yeah, I think if we're trying to be precise about it, we would probably be like a micro press um and i would characterize a micro press as like usually run by like one or two people putting out things kind of scattershot they're not doing publishing seasons we don't work with a major distributor whereas small presses generally have like a couple people working for them there's you know usually some sort of semblance of like someone doing publicity or trying to put things out into the world or doing seasons. Um, maybe they work with consortium uh, or diamond, uh, or yes. diamond, right? Like some distributor to get into shops. And then like, yeah, like uh, Daryl mentioned Fanographics and Drawn and Quarterly, which are both some of the largest independent comics publishers. Um, and, you know, Fanographics publishes probably, I don't know, maybe like a hundred books a year or something. They, um, they're actually 
by any standard, like actually like a pretty decent sized publisher, just not compared to like the big five in New York. So they might be considered not even like a small press, but like just an independent publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, I think it, there's a there's a similar sort of like taxonomy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like right. with like, uh, again, like this like silly distinction you have to make, but like almost like, you know, more like text <laughs> sort of literature too. I sort of wonder, so like, you know, like you're also using, you're also saying big five, right? Which is like our first episode of this podcast. We, cause like one of the things that we do is we start our, trying to build this index, right? Um, mm-hmm. Of just like terms. Uh, because like one thing about this, of work of like publishing editing you know trying to like make (laughs) make literature in the existing economy like there's a lot of like language attached to it that um it's really helpful to know if you want to engage with it and possibly do it yourself so you're saying big five are those i mean do the again just because i don't know the like comics and like graphic narrative sort of landscape as well as i do like poetry and fiction and nonfiction. I mean, do, do the big five all have their own like graphic imprints? Yeah, it's really, it started really only over the past few years. I think in the like mid 2000s, we started to see like more graphic novels being published. Um, like for the adult market, there was books like uh, Fun Home and Persepolis and, um, and Mouse. You know, there was sort of this canon that was introduced for adults. Um, and there was some success with it. What we're seeing happening now, I think, is a lot of the big five creating comics imprints to create books for middle grade readers and young adult readers. Um, and we still haven't seen many of the big five make imprints for adult readers for comics. So there's this um, real gap, I think, in the market there where bigger publishers aren't sure that adults are going to buy comics for themselves and it's sort of like that tends to be with the independent presses which is like feels like an interesting like replication or acknowledgement of like the legitimacy of like a lot of in i i feel like again like you mentioned like like mouse and persepolis right like these are books that i read in english classes in like 2010 2011 so like this is where my understanding of this comes from but like you know, a lot of that underground comics um, like attitude, right? I think is like, it's a somewhat reactionary in part to the notion that adults wouldn't want to read comics, right? Or that those aren't somehow like literary texts. So it's sort of interesting, you know, to, to hear that characterization from you because it seems like it almost points to, you know, a way in which maybe the sort of like the more quote unquote, like underground or like small press or DIY, or micropress, you know, all of these like independent, whatever exists below the like soft mantle of whatever like the large independent is, all this other stuff, maybe including that, is like hyper vibrant and like really interested in like the possibilities of the form and in like ideas and magic, as you said, and like variety and strangeness and um, whatever that might be. Um, and not to say that those big five graphic like books might not be great but that it seems as though like there still hasn't been like the that kind of buy-in <laughs> you know what i mean like at like a beyond um that sort of aesthetic buy-in uh yeah, yeah which is curious right there's way more biodiversity and in, indie press in general probably in 
in your world and our world? Yeah, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I think I. I want to think about that. I'm interested in the way that you're almost tying it to, like the way in which that the graphic texts have become really. I'm pro- someone's going to email us and be like, "It's not a graphic text." Like I, I don't. Whatever. I don't I care. I wish Just, someone would email us. No one ever. Know, no one ever fights us. <laughs> <laughs> we're daring people to email us all the time and correct us on things, and no one, no one will do it. So maybe this will finally be the one because I'm really taking up a lot of. Yeah, there's a lot of terms here that I know are like in comics are are hotly debated. So, yeah. um, it's so it's so <laughs> beautiful. Like sort of establishing a glossary because it is nice to be able to use precise language to describe yeah. these things. Um, and you know, like in, especially in teaching comics history, that's something that I'm like trying to do is like describing certain eras of comics um, using those terms. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting how education plays into this too, right? Because like the, the thing you point to is like the, the way in which these types of books have kind of, they've gotten maybe like the buy-in at the big five level because they're they're almost like um, easy to understand as like like learning materials in a sense, right? Um, and I think I think it's like fascinating to think of these kinds of books and how they, they sort of like challenge our maybe like original conceptions of like what reading is and like can be, but it's kind of like a, a real like unimaginative, which I guess is what you get when you're trying to build a, um, a profitable case for something. But like, you know, it's sort of an unimaginative conception of like what the form can do if it's like, well, it's for, it's for people who maybe aren't ready for a real book yet, <laughs> which feels. I, so I rarely see fiction for adults in comic form like in from big five publishers it's almost always nonfiction, and it's almost always memoir um like 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 a memoir that like kind of has like a personal but then like more like a wide lens showing like the like the context and the history of like what's going on in that person's life if they've like survived a war like that's extra points you know like there's just like a lot of um yeah I feel like there's a, I mean, it's great. Those stories need to get out there, but I think there is like a certain like formula and expectation of like what adults want to read. Um, and it has to like be grounded somewhat in reality and things that come more from the imagination. They like aren't willing to take bets on yet mm-hmm. or whatever. I was thinking too, when you, that it's, it feels like in like the sort of mainstream cultural reception of comics, like it tends to gather around a few figures, you know, like, which is maybe why the attachment to memoir means that you can like gather around that person and like they're willing to publish more work by Alison Bechdel, but not necessarily more work in her genres and aesthetic, you know, like beyond that, like it's surrounds a certain like author kind of almost like they'll, they'll make a sort of brand or authorship, but not expand out into the whole scene or community or all of the kinds of work that people are doing or something. I don't know. Like, it feels like, like the sales pitch is like, read another book by the author of Fun Home, but not like, if you liked (laughs) Fun Home, (laughs) you might want to read like all of the work that that um, artist, you know, like is coming from and their whole context and their whole like world or like what people are doing now or something like that. I don't know. It like memoir seems to like go along with a big five, um, like a commercial attachment to having an author who can serve as a focal point or um, in a way that the author of like a novel or a more like poetic graphic work isn't going to be in the same way. I don't know. Cause it's not their story. I don't, 
yeah yeah i think that's true it's like it like they people are interested in other people i guess the and they want to like hold on to like this image of someone like the author capital a author um and you said that in middle grade too not just adult comics like Raina Telgemeier is a great example of someone who's like style and story have really caught on and um publishers just want more of that from everyone else so yeah it, I mean I think especially at that that level of the the big five publishers it, it is just a very reactive um and it's a very conservative and very sort of reactive environment where people are looking for what's successful and it, a lot of it sort of relies on comp titles right uh, a comparable title that you can pitch to say like well this was successful so this will be okay and like there's not a lot of risk taking if you can't like name something like that mm-hmm. um you know like and, and i did publish my book with uh with random house and i was able to i got kind of lucky that i got in right as an imprint was starting and there was like a little bit more risk taking involved but i think it's like i like i don't know if I think I did get lucky and I don't know if that could happen again because there wasn't like something that I could easily sort of point to that was like, this book has been already successful and I'm doing like a different version of it. <laughs> yeah. Zach, I feel like you're a mid question and I busted in, but I want to ask one more about. Like, yeah, no, totally. Um, it's like whenever we talk about like the magic that inspires publishing, then like my next question is always, it wants to be about like, distribution or something like real symbols like, mm-hmm. like somehow to just be the nerdiest possible so i was just curious about like the distribution of parsifal and of presses you know indie and small presses publishing comics and you mentioned consortium and i think diamond is that um was that the other one um you know consortium we're familiar with in in our literary-ish realm but i was thinking too about so i was curious how distribution worked in that realm and for your press and and also like what what the role of like booksellers is in terms of helping cultivate a reception and audience for different kinds of comics you know from underground you know underground small press indie and if there's more like if there are distributors who really know how to find those booksellers or to cultivate those relationships if presses are having to do that themselves or just kind of how that distribution and book selling relationship works for the for smaller presses in your publishing world (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, on a more general macro level, um, like Consortium and Diamond are a great example of two very different approaches to distributing comics. Uh, and, and in some ways, there's almost like two different types of comic book stores. There's like a like a comic book store that sort of came up with what we often call in comics like industry comics published by Marvel and DC, um, direct market comics. Um, that are you know dealing more with genre and superheroes um, and it's almost like an entirely different area of comics it happens to be the same format but like the culture is like very very different um, and a lot of the small presses that we know in indie comics don't get very much success distributing through diamond to those comic book stores and the other comic shops that we're more familiar with are these kind of like indie comic book stores that have a lot more in common with like an indie literary bookstore. And I think that especially over the past like 10 to 20 years, comics, um, indie comics have been trying to kind of find a home in these comic bookstores and also in sort of like independent bookstores. And Consortium is pretty young. I think, isn't it like 10 years old or something? I think it did start, yeah, yeah. like around the same time that Uncivilized yeah. in, in Minneapolis. But um, so 
for us, we, you know, we don't use any sort of big distributor and rely mostly on the more sort of community aspects of, of distribution. Um, a lot of the independent comics scene has relied on conventions, which I, I, I imagine that there are in the, in the poetry world as well. Um, yeah. But in, in comics, they're a pretty big thing. I think that we're going to, you know, maybe five different conventions this fall with Parthenal Comics all around the country. It's a, a scene that involves tabling at shows as kind of like the pretense of going and like hanging out with your friends and like catching up. Um, and that's how we've been distributing comics and meeting people and also sort of just like with a spreadsheet of comic book shops that we reach out to to carry our work basically all the books that we print are in our room upstairs and we mail them ourselves um (laughs) there there are also a lot of small publishers that use crowdfunding um like kickstarter and crowdfunder i had a book come out recently through crowdfunder um from this um, another micro press and that acts also as a distributor because if you back the, the fund then the books will get mailed to you and it they don't come from the publisher they come usually there's like a third-party distributor like white squirrel or something that will that will mail the books to you so and there's there's a there's also a small network i would say of comic distributors too which we've talked about with parsifal as um places that will curate a lot of the really micropressed or the self-published works that's out there like put it all up on a website and um you know allow you to order selections that way they're like online comic book shops like spit and a half which is run by john porcelino who's a cartoonist and wig shop web shop which is even more curated um radiator comics and we were thinking of starting one um <laughs> starting one called particle delivery service and we'd probably just you know pick out comics that we like and you can order them from our website but it's still kind of like an idea right now yeah i mean i think that you know there's that question of like what is the difference between like a publisher and a distributor right is it like just like paying for production and doing promotion of it like um and i think a lot of places serve kind of as both yeah i mean if you don't have a distributor then like you are the distributor for sure (laughs) um just a quick follow-up question in the spirit of nuts and bolts do you um, do you print your books yourselves or do you, um, like, do you work with a, a printer who does like the, like the printing and the binding? I only ask because I, I've interacted with objects that you've both made before, which maybe you made at CCS and those were like different projects, but I just wonder how does it, how it works for Parsifal? Yeah, for me, I, I, I printed up my little abolition zine, which was my sort of contribution to Parsifal and I like hand pulled that and that I had around the corners myself. I think for most of the other books, we've worked with small printers, um, including uh, most prominently Color Code in Toronto, which is a risograph printing studio um, that's been doing a really nice job getting a unique texture to these books. Ooh, texture, you say? <laughs> it would be cool if we had a risograph, but both of us are too afraid to... To use the machine, <laughs> it <sounds laughs> terrible, yeah. get into another, yeah, into another mo- money hole, and uh, time suck. But yeah, I mean, uh, being able to print more of our own comics would be like a, a great thing that we would yeah. potentially be looking towards cool. down the line. And you know, a lot of publishers are also comic book shops, or they are also print studios, right? There's often like um, publishers often do something else as well. Perfectly acceptable is a good example of a print studio slash publisher. In Chicago. That's yeah. cool. And I think that that's something that doesn't 
that type of like hybrid model maybe doesn't like quite exist to the same extent. Like I can't think of quite the same. I can't, I can't really find a fitting analogy among like, you know, maybe like some presses that will like have like a letter press and they'll make like little uh, broadsides or something. Um, and there are like, you know, presses that like super DIY stuff, but in terms of like, you know, you're saying uh, a print studio can become a press, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's like something sort of like that in like the sort of small press, like literary world. But I, it, it just strikes me that like, there aren't, there aren't as many of those I don't know. I can't, I can't think of one that like quite, quite nails it as, as exactly as that, which is interesting. I want to ask, because we've been like, just back like to this like distinction problem. Um, and I was going to ask this question in general terms originally, but I think it actually might be better not have heard you both speak about these things a bit. If I ask it with respect to your, like your work that you make and the work that you want to um, create audiences for as a press, but like, do you think of comics and like graphic narrative texts as literature? And do you do you see yourselves like both as individuals and as a press as part of a literary culture, like the ones that exist around like you know poetry, essay, literary fiction, quote unquote genre fiction, like sci-fi and werewolf erotica? You know, do you see yourselves in some kind of like literary culture like that? And is that, I mean, maybe that's the way in which one could differentiate between what you, you mentioned, like the industry comics, but maybe not. Specifically werewolf erotica is what we're going for. Cool. Good. Yeah. We actually, you know, and I only mentioned werewolf erotica because the last conversation we had, who was it that was working? Someone who was working at, who helped start this press uh, called Black Ocean in Boston uh, was working as I think in either an, an agent or an editor at uh, on some werewolf erotica projects. So it's, fantastic, we should talk to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, we'll, we'll share everyone's contact information for sure. <laughs> I'm interested in thinking about your question in the context of like the physical spaces that exist for these communities because I think that's where you might actually find some of this overlap. And I do think that indie comics does kind of fit in the middle of a few different scenes. Like for instance, you might. In addition to indie comics fests, right, there's plenty of zine fests all around the the country, right? And that might be a place that you find both people bringing mini comics and poetry zines, right? Like you might find like our communities commingling at a zine fest, whereas you also might find like comics commingling with like art books at an art book fair, right? Even if they're not like as narrative. But yeah, I, I think looking at like those specific scenes and thinking of it kind of like a you know, a series of Venn diagrams of scenes um, commingling in spaces could be an interesting way to. Yeah. Or even, like the way you're saying it too, is like the physical spaces you're up, but also maybe there's something to like the physical object, like, like of the book, you know, because maybe like ones you were talking about texture and like, I was, I was sort of joking, but actually I think that, I think that's like really fucking important, <laughs> you know? So maybe it, it, this could also maybe be defined by an interest in like the book as an object or like a, a as a technology. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we work a lot in mini comics, which are essentially the comics version of a zine, right? And a zine can be used for any number of different artistic practices as like a small self-published, um, you know, DIY booklet. Um, it can be poetry or comics or art. So uh, yeah, I'm interested in, in, in like the zine as an object, as like a, something that links all of these different disciplines and formats as well. 
Yeah, but, to, I, but I want to go back to what you're asking about literariness. Yeah. Um, because I do think that we are a literary publisher. Like, I think that there are, like, art comics publishers and poetry comic. Like, there's, like, different, like, niche publishers. And I do think that we have a focus on story. Um, and, like, story told in a way that, in a way that's told well. Uh, like a, and it's, like, it's, like, hard to define that. But, like, um, I... I, one of my annoying snobby criticisms of comics I don't like is like, they're not literary enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and it's like hard to explain exactly what I mean by that. And, but I, it's like a sense that like, there's a, an attention to voice, I guess, which can come through in the actual words or in like the pacing of the comic or the way that it's drawn. It's, it's kind of more of a hybrid voice in comics than it would be just in a text-based medium. I mean, in poetry, you get some more visuals um, just through the enjambment and stuff. But, but uh, so I, I would say that we are a literary publisher. And actually, um, we just had one of our comics nominated for an Ignatz Award for Best Story. So the Ignatz Award um, is the the award that no one outside of comics knows, but everyone within indie comics knows uh, for the Small Press Expo. It happened two hours ago. <laughs> named after a face. Famous comic <laughs> called Crazy Cat and Ignatz, and the award for winning at Ignatz is just an actual brick, like from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Uh, oh, uh, it's not like or anything. It's just it's just a brick. Yeah. Um, so this is the second year in the in a row that um, one of our comics has been nominated for that category, though. So I feel like story. best yeah. story. So I feel like we that is like we we do pay attention to story. Um, yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Congratulations. And I want to, um, maybe that made me think about, uh, maybe there, maybe it's helpful to also frame this in terms of like, like process a little bit too, right? Where like, I'm asking if you think of this work or these like objects that you're helping to create and um, find audiences for as, as literature, do you think that they were written? You know, like do your, you yourself, when you're, when you're making and drawing comics are, are you writing? Is that writing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it would have to be if it's literature, right? I mean, isn't that, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I think this, that's also, I mean, often something that's talked that we all talk about is like, whether you're like a cartoonist that like writes first or draws first, or it's like kind of an equal parts, both, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I tend to actually like draw first um, and then sort of like the drawings end up being more important and then I kind of like write in afterwards, which I think, especially for nonfiction, is not like super typical. And I'm the opposite. I write first and then I draw. Um, but I think I think a lot of the yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the the comics that we've I mean, one has no words at all. One is a, like a totally wordless comic, but the, the others I think are often like kind of written and have um, images that may or may not go with the text. And the job of the reader is to sort of understand uh what's in the middle there yeah but it's, it's not it too different from like just writing with words in that it requires many drafts and like rearranging and editing um before moving on to like the final art i think and there's there's definitely like it's a similar writing process because it's process based it's not like I mean, some artists, including me, will just like go straight to final art and like try to take a more like subconscious approach to a story. But I do think that there's um, there's more in common than not with how 
comics are made. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious about it, <laughs> right? And maybe, maybe my curiosity also comes from teaching, currently like adjuncting teaching like first year composition classes at an art school, you know, where I feel like I'm always drawing on people like, like Linda Berry and like um, Renee Gladman, who are these, you know, they're like writers who are also interested in um, the visual, but like specifically the process of drawing and like, the pen in the hand that is like doing an operation to create what is ultimately a text. I don't know. I, I feel just like endlessly fascinated by <laughs> those questions. So I just, I just wanted to ask you and it felt like maybe, maybe that could unlock some of this literature stuff, but we'll keep thinking about it. I guess maybe um, talking about teaching, maybe like makes this an appropriate time. And you know what, honestly, maybe the Ignatz brick award is like, all the answer to this question that is needed. But um, I want to ask you both about like sort of a large thing, um, but I'm going to like, I'm going to use what is ho- hopefully an uh, illust- illustrative anecdote to, uh, to get us there. So I want to ask in a general way, right, about like about professionalization and professionalism. Because I think, I think there's a maybe somewhat pernicious culture of professionalization in the arts, maybe especially in the United States, right? Um, some, some pressure to like professionalize one's practice um, of whatever, right? Writing, making comics, painting, whatever, right? But that whatever that drive is or that push or that culture, like it, I feel like it underlies either like is evidence of or helps explain like a lot of the economic forces and like social effects that we experience, right, as like people who are all in different ways, like trying to make things and do things and share things in like these hopefully healthy creative communities or scenes or markets or however you want to frame them for now, um, while also, right, like making a living for ourselves somehow and trying to do things sustainably. And like that culture of professionalization, right, like your relationship to it has some political and aesthetic dimensions, right, that I think are inextricable and are going to come out in the work that you produce in some ways or another, um, you know, zines, right. Maybe to think of like, as one form is are like, there's something like anti-professional about the zine, right. The form mm-hmm. is supposed to be unfinished and like rough hewn. And that is often a part of, um, the content of it, right. The object is like meaningful. It's not just, not just a vehicle. It actually is important that it appear to you that way. So that's my intro to professionalization. Right. Um, but I have this like, thing that I feel like I've noticed between like comics culture and like more traditionally like literary culture that I kind of want to get your take on. Um, cause it kind of points to, I think like maybe a, maybe a crisis. <laughs> so, so there's this, like, there's this difference, right. And that, that I've observed, I think I've felt in attitudes toward, uh, specifically towards self-publishing, right. Um, among like people who make comics, graphic narratives, which is, as we've talked about, a form of writing, but whatever, um, compared to writers, right, of like the old text-based literatures, uh, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, essays, um, memoir, etc. So like in the like literary world, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes, so I have to like tell for the audio, um, like self-publishing is kind of taboo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think because on the one hand, it's like seen as kind of unprofessional, and on the other, in like more just like practical terms, you know, the decision to self-publish a piece of work is often going to exclude that same material from ever being picked up by another, uh, another mm-hmm. publisher because 
publisher's terms often include provisions against republishing self-published works, right? They'll say like, no, no self-published works. Um, mm. So I think this is funny because in a way it like legitimizes self-publishing because you're basically saying like, well, it's been published, so we can't publish it. But like, just um, <laughs> just setting uh, setting that aside, that structure that exists, right? That understanding, it just naturally disincentivizes self-publishing for people who are writing fiction or poetry because it's like, well, if I if I publish this myself, then I can never get it placed with like a quote like legit press. Obviously, there are pros and cons to doing either of those things, right? Um, there are advantages to publishing with a press uh, that are material and intangible, right? If you're trying to reach wider audiences, presses often have more like promotional resources. Um, they might have just like money. <laughs> they might like give you an advance. Presses often maybe have like a reputation that they're leveraging. Um, and then in this other way, right? Like there are certain books that I'll buy just because one of my favorite presses put it out. You know what I mean? Um, which is, I think like a interesting, may almost like maybe necessary form of like I'm going to use a bad word, but like gatekeeping or like quality control or however you want to think about it. That's like a whole wormhole. But um, I just wonder if like this difference, right? Like it just, it just seems like in the comics world, people are fine with self-publishing like, or they'll like, they'll self-publish if not entire books, at least like excerpts, because it feels like there's a little bit more of a culture that, that is like a little casual around this, like a pamphlet or like zine based culture versus like it it i don't i just know i don't see like there's a little bit of it sort of in like fiction and poetry but i feel like i just don't see it as much so like i wonder if this difference if it's real if my observation isn't total bullshit if it reflects some difference in attitude toward one's own work and toward professionalization um like in the comics world right like is it is it not as much of a taboo um is there something different there culturally or is that like the market just different like our comics publishers just like yeah you self-publish this but like we don't care we're gonna make it a book <laughs> yeah i mean there's definitely no like hardly any taboo around self-publishing in comics um and not only that but like if your book is published by a micro press or a small press it can still get picked up by a big publisher later like i've seen that happen several times with like a press getting a book getting that was published like as a graphic novel by like chap books which is like a kind of a small press then it got picked up again by penguin random house um so there is less of a taboo and it's interesting i didn't know that about literary like more text based is that mostly just like um independent publishers in the literary world or is it also big publishers i think it, i mean i don't think it's an uncommon practice for a a big publisher to pick up like an extremely like a sensational indie title or small <laughs> press title like further down the line right that's like blowing up like I, I i can think of examples that i know of but yeah i mean just thinking of i mean you know i read a lot of guidelines because i'm like personally i'm like three years into like a pretty sad process of you know sending a manuscript around that keeps getting rejected so like it's just a thing that I notice everywhere, right? It's like um, no self-published works. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I was yeah. thinking when you were asking that question that it has to do also with like materiality, um, which is like, I mean, there's two parts of that. One is that at a lot of the small presses in the literary world, even though they're run by writers, it's not really as culturally the norm for those writers to publish themselves on their own press. Like it does happen. 
Um, but it's not totally common in part because of some idea that it would be like too easy or something that that would make your work like less legit because some other editor needs to like sign off on it. Mm-hmm. I have published, I published a book on Rescue Press where I also worked as the editor. So I guess I kind of slightly crossed that line, but in a way where like one other person still had to like <laughs> say yes, she could have rejected me, you know, like, and so there's that kind of, there's a little bit still of a cultural prohibition that it would be more um, prestigious and like a little bit looked down on if you are publishing yourself on your own press. But then the other side of self-publishing now, I think, Zach, when you were asking that question, it hadn't like occurred to me before, is that a lot of self-publishing for um, like a novel or memoir or whatever is is online. It's an ebook. And so then you can't get it back. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's out there. So it's not a re you aren't going to like find a wider circulation because that text will still be available for 99 cents on a Kindle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like unless you pull it, but people will still have it and they'll write, you know, like it's versus like, like when I've worked at small and indie presses where one of our books blew up and a big press bought it to reprint, like our edition dies <laughs> and then they put out an edition mm-hmm. that circulates. So I think, that feels a little bit more like it has to be a material book and it can't be online and that there's an idea that there would just be different audiences that if you self-publish your own zine, you can get it to the people that you can get to in your zine community. But then if someone picks it up, then get it to a whole other group of people. I was thinking about this recently because I found my, I was probably, I must've been Googling something to do with myself. This is the only way I would have found this out, but like (laughs) I found a zine that I published when I was 16 is in some archive in Columbia uh, like in their library, and I was so mad. Former Dean Library, maybe. Yeah, that must be where it is. There, so they and they had a, they have the, a big Zine Library, so it's probably probably it that. must be there. But I was I was like, that's cool. But then I was like, I don't have that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is like before I wasn't using computer. Like, I don't have it anymore. So I was like, you guys should give it back. Like, I don't have one. Like, um, and he didn't give me a dollar, uh, which is, you should have given me $1 and then you could have it. But, um, so I think it's like thinking about that sense of things circulating materially or in different communities. And that like, if there's a reprinting, it can get to a different group of people versus text, you know, that become this like disembodied ebook that yeah. is like sort of just a PDF forever out there or something i don't know um, but it is also cultural because we do have a stigma in literary publishing pre- yeah publishing your yeah. own work yeah. and i guess i'm realizing that when i whenever i encounter that guideline prohibition against self-publishing like they're, they're not um they're not making the distinction Mm-mm. between um ebook or physical it just seems like at all <laughs> so like yeah. if you if this came out on a I mean, they group it in with like, often, I think it's often grouped in with like previously published, right? Like uh, this is a previously published work. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, self-published equals previously published. Um, but it's just so fascinating that it doesn't seem to exist in, in comics. I think some of this may have to do with just the process in general. There's like a, a couple of distinctions that I think might be interesting for this. And, and one is that like, I think in literary works, generally the whole manuscript is done before it's submitted. Um, In comics, that's almost never the case. Uh, Usually you submit based off of a sample or a small piece, and then you 
expanded. It's partly because comics take so long, right? Like, and it's like really, it's almost impossible to edit a finished comic. Like, once the like, you can't like move things around in the same way. You can't just like, you know, they're not like as modular as like moving sort of paragraphs around or editing. And I think also something I was talking about earlier today, I was talking in a, a graphic novel workshop at the, the Center for Cartoon Studies and all, all these students are coming in with big sort of ideas for graphic novels. And a lot of them sort of get into it and realize like, oh my God, it takes forever to make a graphic novel. And I think something that a lot of people don't realize is that most graphic novels are not just like made start to finish. Like the whole history, uh, graphic novel is almost like a misnomer in that they're like basically collections of chapters that were generally serialized. Mm -hmm. And this is true for like nearly like all uh, comics uh, that people are like really familiar with. Like Mouse was originally serialized in chapter form in Raw Magazine. Even like Raina Telgemeier's Smile, which was like one of the best-selling books a couple of years ago, was like a mini-comic first. It was like a self-published mini-comic. So I think, you know most graphic novels kind of came up as a format as collections of chapters and serialized works and serialization has been such like an integral part of comics history from web comics to newspaper strips to like you know floppy comics that get collected into books that maybe that has something to do with it as well and, and to sound really nerdy um like it's also like the history of like just novels in general like if you look at like Middlemarch or like anything by Charles Dickens, you know, those were all serialized in, mm. in publications. They weren't just like put out as, as novels right away. So, maybe so where did it switch in novels? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, maybe it's just like because graphic novels are relatively new, it's like kind of like maybe it'll follow a similar trajectory. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. That I didn't, I hadn't thought about that, that it's the, the serialization sort of changes would yeah it would like naturally change that wouldn't it and we're seeing a lot of like i mean i think a lot of times something being published and having an audience around it is like a reason for a publisher in comics to pick it up because they know that like especially if it's like a web comic or something that's been published on instagram that has like a hundred thousand followers that that's like a pretty good market to tap for like a physical book so yeah it's it's interesting to see and I, i've seen Publishers allow, you know, at least a portion of a webcomic to be left online as a way to continue to sort of provide like a sample to people um, who may eventually go on to buy the book. I also wonder if there's less of a stigma because because comics is zine adjacent, it's like more related to like punk culture than to like academic culture, which I feel like I associate more with literary circles. Um, so there's like less of a historical interest in those kinds of hierarchies um and i i'm like really glad that like you even see that just like when you go to a comic convention and it just feels very like egalitarian like you can you don't have to buy a comic from someone you can like offer to trade your comic with someone else if they're relatively the same price there's like this built-in like community aspect to it I'm so glad you put it in those terms because like one of the first versions of this question was just like, is comics just more punk rock than poetry? And like, I think, you know, I think yes is kind of the answer, you know, 
Um, and I think maybe, I mean, one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast and these conversations is like learn things, you know, um, and maybe one thing we could learn <laughs> is maybe like how to be a little bit more, you know, punk about that shit, you know, and maybe like be a little more okay with like, um, you know, putting out a pamphlet, but you know, it, you're right, you know, because I guess, uh, you know, the other side to this is that often inside of the question of like professionalism and how it shifts the culture, you know, is the, the concern that like the very real concern that like most academic jobs, like to like teach creative writing, like one of the first requirements is a book <laughs> and a book published by a, like a, usually it's framed as like a, a national or like reputable publisher. So, you know, IE like not a micro press. <laughs> uh, okay. So I guess the answer to the question is just that like academia isn't punk rock and you know, everybody knew that already. <laughs> and that it's held back. It's like held back like innovation and form in that way, because it's like people aren't, you know, like when I was a young experimental-ish prose writer, like people were doing some like web stuff, you know, like they were like making these like narrative web projects that were like multimodal and like went in many directions and there was, they were nonlinear and like all this stuff. And then people are not doing, you know, like, that is not like a vein that people are exploring. And I think in part it's because you can't like list it on your CV. Like, you know what I mean? Like what would like, you'd be like, I made a website. I made a really well-respected website. <laughs> like, like it just isn't. So I think in that sense, I mean, I can't like prove that that's the cause and effect of like why we didn't, um, you know, continue down this vein of, of like building, you know, innovative, like narrative web experiment, just experimental prose projects, but it's tumblers. like, like, well, and some, you know, they were like this whole, like, you could pursue different directions and like Steve Tomasula had some cool stuff. Like there's a bunch of names that I'm forgetting that I'll remember later. We can put them in at the front, like, <laughs> you know, like, but people didn't keep doing that. And I think in part that that professionalization is the problem with that because you cannot, it's not a book that people can sell. So a publisher, you can't, it's not going to like go anywhere for you. And then also if you're relying on um, academia to be your bread and butter, you can't like get promoted on having done a cool web page thing that no one has any like critical reference points for and knows how to talk about like, or can't get like peer reviewed or signed off on, you know, like even though some of them are like quite well known and circulating. So I think it's like, I don't know, like professionalism really <laughs> uh, kills the, it's, it's killing us. <laughs> but um, having that, yeah. Yeah. It just feels like, it, I, I, I think, you know, like, that's true, right? And it just seems like there has to be some breaking point, right? Like, and, and, and like, things just get so much more and more and more rarefied, you know, like, at what point, at what point do we, you know, over here in, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> shirt with buttons on it, uh, you know, poetry camp, like, at what point do we just kind of stop giving a shit? You know, I, I wonder, right now. I say this as someone yeah. who, you know, is like adjuncting in multiple places and like would, would love right. to have yeah. a job someday, you know, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I say it as someone that our livelihood comes from comics and teaching comics. Yeah. Um, and, and, oh, sorry. and I have like, you know, like I published with like a major publisher and, you know, I will say that even though comics representing comics is pretty punk rock, comics still is not like punk rock as punk rock is, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about this a lot um, because, you know, especially 
within the the context of our education where people are paying for it, there is sort of this like culture around like, okay, I need to find some way to at least like break even with what I'm doing um, and hopefully like make money on the, on this, um, right? Because I'm like going into debt to learn it. Um, and I don't know, it, it, like it made me think about sort of growing up in sort of DIY music spaces where those conversations just like never really seemed to happen. And there was never, it didn't seem like there was ever like a pretense of like making money off of it. And like, if you could break even, that would be great. But like, it was never a thing. Um, and there's a lot of similarities too, in the way that music, you know, people gather and share music and like hand created CDs and packaging and like the physical objects. Um, so I'm off, I, you know, I often talk about the DIY music scene um, as a way of like bringing some of these like professionalism conversations and comics down to earth. For us too, not not with academia, but like with the big publishers. Like you always hear about cartoonists wanting agents and pitch, like wanting to pitch books to the big five. And there's and like, I feel like I've been like at this constant crossroads of like, should I continue to just like focus on self publishing and like doing indie press stuff, pitching to small publishers, never making any money, or should I like try to actually make a living from like pitching a book that like may not be as close to my heart, but like would reach a wider audience and like give me like you know pay the bills for a couple months <laughs> um i feel like a lot of cartoonists are kind of at that crossroads of like what what do i want to compromise to make a little bit more money um or or reach a wider audience or, reach a, yeah, or right. yeah or reach a wider audience or like should i be should i work under the umbrella of like a famous like ip like like something from marvel or dc or something like that because that's another way you can use your skills and make money in the field, but it may not, it's, you know, you're not telling your own story. So that's where it, that's where it comes in with our world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, these are the, this is like the final, this is the final boss question, <laughs> you know, like, um, or these are the final boss ideas, you know, to your point, Dan, I mean, I, I have, we'll probably delete this cause I feel like I'm about to say something stupid, but like, you know, mm -hmm. I often see, just like the behavior that I see, like on just like on display, you know, um, in like the little sort of small press indie, you know, but also criticism, like literary communities that like I'm in, at least like on the internet, I'm often just like blown away by the way in which people either expect or even like hope to get paid. <laughs> just like what <laughs> are you crazy like yeah. that's why you're doing this like that's just like that's wild to me like I like that and I, I guess it's just similar to what I don't and I'm not saying that's right I'm, I'm not saying I'm right I'm not it, that hasn't really done me any favors over the years but it's just it's maybe at least like maybe one can be feel at least a little liberated from like those concerns but it, it to your point Dan I think it does kind of mirror yeah, for whatever reason, things that happen in those like, you know, indie music scenes that are just like, I don't know how much, how much do we have to pay to rent the venue? You know, like, right, that's, right. that's the extent of like the transaction. It's like, we want to, we, we want to have a show or we want to make a record. Like, we'll just get the money for that and like accomplish that. And like, if we get to be like doing this thing, then like that, that's enough. I mean, that's, I think our approach to like running a, a small press too, is like, we like not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure we're losing 
money uh, on it. You know, like, <laughs> for sure. Uh, for sure. Um, you know, like, and it, you know, I try to, I don't know, just like bring it back to that. It's just like, there's lots of things that we do that we don't expect to make a profit on because it's fun and it builds community and it adds value to your life. And like, even if like my career is making comics for money and doing contract work, like having some element of that, like, type of art for community's sake, um, I think is like really important. And I, and I really, I mean, I remember thinking about this years ago when I was like trying to decide what to do is like, I want both. Like, I don't want to have to choose between yeah, like, yeah. you know, like to only having like a small amount of people see my work and, um, like making money or like, I, I really do think that there's like potential for both if you like, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You do it right. Yeah. I always have to remember that because I'm always like, it's one or the other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You either can. sell out or you, you just find a <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it is a it is a sort of like inscrutable long game, you know, like if you really like, if you, I do agree with you. I want, I mean, I, I don't think I'm a very hopeful person, but like, I want to have, I want to have that hope too. I, I don't think any of us think we're doing all this for for no reason or like just just to make money you know um that would be wild um <laughs> but i do think that i do think it's there but i think that like it, it is like it is like a deeply strange um <laughs> it's a deeply strange way to try to move through the world um and don't begrudge anybody for whatever their form of it differing from anybody else's it's it's really interesting Maybe this is a good a good way to uh, like wrap up with one more question, if that's okay. Um, so this podcast is called Index for Continuance, and we're in the spirit of maybe what we were just talking about. We're really interested in in continuance, right? And what keeps what keeps you what keeps one going, you know? Um, what keeps you continuing, um, especially in the face of things that would, you know have have it be otherwise so i'll just ask both of you um like what keeps you what keeps you going what keeps you energized what are you excited about right now in comics publishing or writing in general how do you hope for the future yeah I, so in in the in in general in the comic scene in in sort of uh the spirit of this question of continuance i think that there was a lot of questions first theme that has been so based off of meeting together in these like very, very crowded spaces where like, like pre pandemic it, you generally got sick after you got home from a comics convention. The comics crud. It's called the comics crud, right? Like you're, you're sick and right. Like you're so, so crowded. I think that there was a lot of questions about like, like how is comics going to recover from um, the height of the pandemic? Like, will it recover? Will it like, turn out to be the same um scene and i think we're still like in the midst of having those conversations about like it like what do we want this community to look like should it still be based off of you know traveling to to shows and like what barriers does that have and i think people i'm really interested to see sort of what like the sort of post pandemic uh I, I don't love that term but like you know um what that looks like for the comics community going forward and how um, people find other ways of creating community. And for me, you know, that's like a big part of doing Parkable Press is just like a way of 
having us be able to identify things that we're like excited about and really want to like help share in the community and finding different ways of like keeping that going even in between conventions, which is why we were talking about like distribution. So yeah, I, I think like I'm, I'm excited to see new ways of approaching. I'm excited to see new small presses coming up. I'm always excited to see new work. That's a great thing about teaching at a school is that you see people coming up that are really excited about comics and doing new things with the form. Um, like I just find it like really deeply satisfying. There's, it's like, it's like working on a, a puzzle for me um, in terms of like trying to fit everything right. It's really, really hard. It like continues to really challenge me as a form and it just feels like there's unlimited sort of different directions I can go in with it. So that's my overview from the macro to the, the <laughs> micro level of why I think comics has a bright future. <laughs> that's cool. Daryl, are you going to go micro to macro or are I you going to be micro? <laughs> <laughs> I've tried macro. I, well, I'll, I'll see if I get there, but well, to start with micro, I guess, I, I mean, I, the reason I, I feel like I can continue working in comics is just because, I mean, maybe it's out of habit. Maybe it's, I've been doing it. I've been in the community for so long and I feel like it's supported me for so long that I like, I'm at a point where I feel like I want to give back to it. And I feel like being in a press is a great way to do that. And I'm, I'm we're, being in the CCS community means that we're just like constantly surrounded by these new stories coming out. And it's nice to be able to like get those stories out to more people. Um, so it's kind of what Dan was saying. And I'm also excited about being back at shows and being the like artists that I don't know about because CCS can be kind of like a little bubble sometimes where it just feels like like this is the whole comics community, but then you go out to a show and you meet people you've never seen, whose work you've never seen before, um, which is exciting. And I don't know. I'm excited to just keep making comics. <laughs> I'm, I'm like going to... I feel like I'm married at this point to comics or something. Like it's like I'm not like at the. <laughs> sometimes I feel bitter about it. Sometimes I'm I'm excited about it. But it's, um, I'm committed. <laughs> so yeah, and there's just there's so many ways to go with it. And we talked a little bit about this, and it was one of the reasons I was excited to talk with poets. Uh, is you know Daryl has described comics as kind of like a medium of mediums where you can like constantly be integrating elements of poetry and film and design and you know like a lot of those languages come into play when we're talking about comics and it, it feels like there's unlimited ways to rearrange different forms on like a comics page mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps it a pretty vibrant scene. Yeah, there's just there's and there's still so much potential with how you can tell a story and like how you can convey experiences in comics form and like in a way that you can't do in like any other medium. So um, there have been times where I've read a comic and I've like gasped because it's like it's been able to convey something that I've never seen or it's created a, a feeling that I've never seen or felt before. You know, um, there's something alchemical about it.